Okay, we are, we're in the final week of our series within our series. So our five-week mini-series in the book of Revelation titled Salvation and Judgment. So after today, we only have three chapters left in Revelation. Some of you maybe bemoan that. Most of you probably are ready to celebrate that. But the last couple of weeks uh, that we've been in Revelation, we've looked at the great prostitute and Babylon, which we talked about. Those are pictures of the same thing, an anti-Jesus culture that seduces people with pleasurable things, which then means it doesn't always look anti-Jesus, right? It looks good. It looks enticing. It draws us in. Anti-Jesus does not always look anti-Jesus. But we've seen in the last couple of chapters of Revelation and throughout the book of Revelation how God's wrath will be poured out on evil in a way that is decisive. It will end evil. Evil will be destroyed. Jesus will conquer. And in all of this then, what it's communicating to us is that Jesus is what we are looking for. And that's really the point of Revelation to provide us these vivid climactic pictures of ultimate reality to inform our everyday existence and pull our attention away from the many things in the world that are pleasurable, comfort-inducing, to pull us away from those things and towards the only one deserving of our attention, who is Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the verses we're looking at. God, thank you for this book of Revelation. Thank you for the many ways in which you have sought to reveal Jesus to us, whether we've seen it or not. You have sought to reveal Jesus to us. And God, I pray for each of us uh, in our hearts that Jesus would be supreme. And what we talk about this morning, I pray that that Jesus would be the centerpiece. I pray that our gaze would be drawn to him and our hope would be stirred in Jesus. So God, wherever we're at this morning, distracted, focused, discouraged, excited, wherever we find ourselves, God, would you press heavy upon our hearts Remind us of our need of the gospel, and I pray that you would capture our attention in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we're going to take Revelation 19 in three different chunks today, so I'm going to read the first ten verses for us uh, to get us going. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice 
of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so I want to begin by making a few brief observations here about what's going on in these verses and then kind of focus in on a primary picture that we get in these verses as well as at the end of Revelation 19 as well, which is focused on the idea of a supper. So first, our mini-series that we've been going through these last five weeks um, is titled Salvation and Judgment. I don't know if you heard the explicit reference here at the beginning of chapter 19. Salvation and glory belong and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. The Bible gives, throughout the Bible, it gives us many either-or scenarios. And here, the either-or is people are either saved or they are judged. Okay, there's no middle ground. There's maybe you'll be saved. There's none of that. It's either saved or judged. And, And then what we read here is that the judgment that is happening is not reckless. It's not inappropriate. We don't need to wonder If the judgment is reasonable, it says here that it is true and just. Now the actions of God saving and judging is creating the context within which we are reading. What's happening here is uninhibited worship of God. People are giving full-throated praise to God. His salvation, His judgment will bring this about. Both of those. His salvation of people and his judgment of those rebelling against him will bring about this full-throated praise of God. Now, you likely heard this statement repeated multiple times in these verses. Hallelujah. This verse literally means praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord. This is the repeated refrain in heaven as these people are witness to the wondrous works of God. And those around the throne then, whom we were introduced to back, I think, in chapter 4 of Revelation, are the elders and creatures. And what they're doing is they are falling down in worship before the throne. We're also told about a great multitude in heaven, which we should read here as Jesus' church. They are thundering their praise of God for his greatness. They see his salvation, they see his judgment, and they're moved because they see the great works of God. So so the picture here then, when people see God for who he is, they cannot help but praise him. And one of the ways we see this praise 
occurring is because of what we read in verse 3. It says, the smoke going up forever and ever. So the smoke of God's enemies is going up forever, which is signifying kind of a final end. There is this destruction of evil, but yet this ongoing reminder of that destruction of evil as well. Anything that opposed God has been destroyed. This is going to be the future reality. It also says that they are praising God because he has avenged the blood of his servants. I was thinking about this this week, and, and I was really comforted by this. God never forgot, nor does he forget, the pain of his children. In the midst of our suffering, we can often wonder, where is God? What's going on? Does he see me? Does he care about what I'm going through? Does he know my situation? And to be honest, primarily the reference to blood here is referring to persecution. Okay, it's referring to people, Christians being killed because they're trusting in Jesus. But this character issue about God speaks to a larger reality of who God is. In our own ways, maybe we don't feel our blood's not being shed because of our faith, but we do feel discouragement. We do feel depression. And this idea that God does not forget that he is going to right every wrong communicates to us the reality that in our own personal depression, discouragement, God knows. He cares. He isn't unaffected by what we walk through in our everyday. And the outpouring of his wrath against his enemies will demonstrate his awareness and his care in a final way. And those things that we walk through here and now that drag us down, that suck hope out of our lives, God is going to right every wrong. Now, we've got to be careful here. It's clear what's being described here is this final climactic event. And so the danger for us then is thinking that this has no bearing on us today. But it does. We're being told that the song that's going to be sung on that day of victory. This is the song that Christians will be singing before the throne. So today then, we don't just kick it and pay no attention to what's going on today, thinking this is only a future reality. No, we are being called into singing this song today, here and now, reminding ourselves of where things are headed. God's power is true for us today. That same power that will be manifested in that moment is true for us today as well. God's glory can be seen in endless ways for us today. So we're being called to fear God, to worship Him, to sing of His greatness, to give Him glory, to tell others of His kindness here and now, today. Not then, also then, but today and tomorrow as well. It's also saying that we're being called to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure. Now, this can sound really churchy, 
really hokey, but let's understand what's being communicated here. It says in verse 8 that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this is saying that a life of faith puts, or a life of faith in Jesus puts his righteousness on display, okay? A life of faith in Jesus puts his righteousness on display for others to see and to encounter. But this verse almost sounds workspace, doesn't it? Clothe yourselves with righteous deeds. We know from the rest of the Bible that it relentlessly communicates that God alone saves. We are saved by grace, not by any works that we do on our own. And the Bible tells us the same truth over and over in varied ways so that we will not forget it. God saves. That's why people are worshiping him for his salvation in this chapter. And here in verse 8, we're given this heavenly picture of people praising God, adorned with righteous deeds. And why are they doing this? It says it right here for us. Because it was granted. It was granted to them to do this and to put on this fine linen. God made it happen. He empowered it. He provided it. And as with everything, it's all about him. So I mention this because this is the prevailing theology of the Bible. The Bible presents a a picture of a big God and of a small humanity needing a big God to save them. So this then should be a prevailing reality in our hearts. We need a big God to chase us down, to save us, and to clothe us, to grant us that we can then be clothed with this fine linen or these righteous deeds. Okay, final image then I want to highlight in this first section regards the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 7, we read, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The Bible uses the imagery of marriage often, okay? And it's not an accident that here at the consummation of all things, it is being depicted with marriage. Jesus, the Lamb, is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. So at the culmination of all things, the church and Jesus are being unified. This is the picture that's being given to us. Ephesians 1 speaks of all things being united in Jesus. This is the culmination of years of history, of many battles being fought, of much suffering being endured. This is the culmination of of it, a marriage ceremony. This is the story God has been telling to us throughout history. So, when we pull back from this picture and we think about marriage here and now today, marriage is not merely a convenient arrangement for us to reside in. Marriage is not just to practically make life easier for us. Marriage is not about tax advantages. Though all of these things can be part of it, but that's not God's design. God's design is that marriage, your marriage, or any marriage that exists, is is not about you. It's not about your kids. It's intended to tell a story much bigger than us. It's intended to tell this story. Jesus coming to rescue his bride. 
And it's really clear then when we look at what's happening here in this picture that you want to be invited to this marriage supper. It says, blessed are those who are invited. We should want this. We should long for this. We should look forward to this. And, and this whole reality is emphasized by the fact that the angel tells John right before this, he says, write this. Okay? The angel is letting John know, you need to record this. This is important. Back in Revelation chapter 10, John was explicitly told to not write something. Right? That there was something that was left to mystery. But here, he's being told, write this. This is of utmost importance. Our blessing is connected to this invitation to being invited to this marriage supper. Now, every single day, we're pulled towards a way of thinking that blessing is found in something or someone that's not this. That's not Jesus. And the call for us as we preach the gospel to ourselves, is to continually come back to these ultimate realities that God gives to us. That steak that you've been looking forward to for four days, thinking like that thing is going to, yeah, it's going to be good. And you should eat that to the glory of God. And you should enjoy that thing. But don't think like it's going to transform your week. Because it's not. It will only lead you to disappointment if that's the hope that we put in it. So these ultimate realities are given to us so that we would continually come back to these things and be reminded of what God says is of utmost importance for us. Okay, uh, let's jump to the next section now. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has written a name, or he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First record of a tattoo right there, right? That's what many people think, so... This is a section of the Bible that many people have at least heard a vague reference to, right? Simply the idea of someone riding in on a white horse has been repeated many times in our culture. Uh, I guess I can't speak to other cultures, but at least in our culture. And to be clear, the descriptions given here are intended to convey a clear picture of Jesus. This is talking about Jesus, okay? He is the only one like this. Earlier we read about God's judgments being faithful and true, but now we're reading about the one sitting on the horse, and he is called faithful and true. This is his name. So we can't just read over 
this, faithful and true. This should stand out to us in the greater context of Revelation because this is a strong contrast to what we have heard about Satan and his beasts. They are liars. They are deceivers. Jesus is the epitome of truth. Truth is sure. Truth is dependable. Every single one of us wants to be in relationship with someone who is faithful. Somebody that we can count on. That when things go south or sour for us, we know we can go to that person and they'll have our back. They'll be there for us with a listening ear, a word of encouragement, whatever it might be. We want someone who is faithful, someone that we can count on. But if we're honest, we oftentimes feel like we lack that. We oftentimes feel unseen, unheard, not cared for. We feel like other people let us down. A lot. And that's why we need to remind ourselves who Jesus is. Because that's not who Jesus is. He is faithful and true. And if you're anything like me, and I know you are because you, you wear similar skin to me, right? You're part of this human existence. Our tendency when we feel unseen, unheard, is to go into this cycle of self-pity. And it's hard to get out of that cycle of self-pity for many of us. And, and it just compounds itself. Well, they don't see me. They don't hear me. They don't care about me. And then we just devolve all the more in on ourselves. And, and this is why we need to see Jesus for who he is. But not just see Jesus for who he is, but let this shape us in a substantial way to orient ourselves around this. Uh, this. He is faithful and true. He says, I promise to never leave you nor forsake you. Don't minimize that reality. Run to it. Understand, he's running after you. He's the friend who never leaves your side. Preach this to yourself. Jesus is faithful and true. Alone. He is on a next level far beyond any other level that we can even conceive. So keep reminding yourself of who Jesus is. The picture we get here of Jesus is exactly what we yearn for. So when it's talking about him being faithful and true, what this is communicating is he is worthy. He is worthy to have the song sung about him to have people fall down in front of him and worship him. He is worthy of anything we will give to him. Everything else that we read then in these verses is speaking to his supremacy. Because he is worth, worthy, not, now we see all these other components going on here. Like his power is supreme. His might is incomparable. His justice is good. Even his wrath is true justice. 
If we would stop and consider the symbolic depiction of Jesus and how it communicates his goodness and his power, we would be able to find at least a hint of what we are looking for every day. What John is seeing here is the culmination of the Christian life. That daily grind of trying to orient our gaze towards Jesus, this is the culmination of it. Jesus has come. He is triumphant. He is ruling over everyone. He has come to save. As I was reading these verses this past week, in my office, just me, the, the more I read them, I was reading them over and over, the more I just wanted to start clapping and exclaim, like, let's go! This is it! This is the point of it all, of what I'm doing today as I'm studying these verses. This is the point to get there. When I'm sitting at basketball games, trying to encourage kids, love them, support them, the point is this. It's, this is the trajectory. This is where we're going. This should inform how I'm living here and now, day to day. This is what we're called to be waiting for, ready expectant, on the edge of our seats. You guys feel that way? Do you feel like you live life on the edge of your seat? Expectant for that? It's really easy to get sucked in to the busyness, right? To slouch back, metaphorically speaking, in life, to slouch back in our chair, just be casual about the gospel, casual about these ultimate realities. This is written for a reason. This is for us. To grab us. To get our attention. And remind us what it's all about. Revelation gives us really strong contrast. And, and that's one of the big things about Revelation. Is that you get these strong contrasts. In the previous chapter. We read of how the earth was filled with weeping and mourning. You guys remember this? There was weeping and mourning because people had trusted in pleasure. They had trusted in comfort and in the finer things of life. And when wealth was laid waste, people were devastated. They didn't know what to do with themselves, right? Weeping and mourning over and over. That's what we were reading in chapter 18. The reason we find ourselves not amped up about Jesus' return is because of the same reasons. We're hoping in pleasure. We're hoping in comfort, in the finer things of life. We're not, or we are hoping in not Jesus. Anything other than, lesser than Jesus. Michael touched on this last week as well, that we we look for other things to satisfy what only Jesus can satisfy. We live as though we are going to be inhabitants of this earth forever. And in a sense, we are, as it's going to be recreated. But we are not inhabitants of this culture. And all that the agenda that's being promoted here and now. And so looking at the fact that Jesus is worthy, looking at the fact that Jesus is supreme, I want to just plead with us that we would be shook
from our spiritual slumber. We don't need more downtime. We don't need more Netflix. We don't need more income. We, whatever that, fill in the blank, whatever that is for you, you don't need more of that. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. He is faithful. He is true. It says he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Word of God. What you want, what will satisfy you, is grace. That's what we're all hungering after. So, can we give our lives to something worthy? Something good? Something lasting? Something satisfying? Revelation tells us over and over, the deceitfulness of sin makes us think we're not as bad as we really are. The deceitfulness of sin makes us think we're not, not as bad as we really are. That we don't need Jesus as much as we really need Jesus. And as your pastor, love compels me to try and spell this out for us. To, to confront it head on. Not letting you think that just because I call myself a Christian, I'm good. Just because I prayed a prayer at four years old or whenever you prayed a prayer that you're good because of that. Just because I don't sin or at least I don't think I sin like the person next to me, I am good. We've got to be honest with ourselves. We are lazy people. We are forgetful people. And if we are just plain Christian, if Jesus is just fire insurance for us, if he is just a prop if we prioritize anything in life over Jesus, if we're just going through the motions spiritually, I'm not saying this to scare us, but saying this as a warning and in love, we need to examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith. Are you actually believing the gospel? Is it a valuable treasure to you? Or is it a convenience? Is it a crutch that you lean on sometimes? Or is it your whole life for you? We here at Center Church, we're not just looking for Christians. We're not trying to get you just to check a box here. What the gospel does is it builds up strong, sturdy, courageous followers of Jesus. That, that's what we want to build up here. Strong, sturdy, courageous. Yes, meek. Yes, humble, for sure. But strong and sturdy. Rooted in the gospel. Knowing that as the winds of this life are blowing all around us, as the waves are crashing on us, that we can stand firm in the gospel. That Jesus is enough for us. Because he is. And this picture that we're getting of Jesus here in verses 11 to 16 is intended to remind us he is what we want. He is what we need. So look at him 
and trust in him. Okay, I mentioned just a little bit ago um, some contrasts in Revelation. And there is a really stark contrast in this chapter. And that is with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let me read just the last few verses here and then I'm going to draw out this, this contrast really quickly. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Really vivid picture here, right? Grotesque in in some ways. There are two suppers in this chapter. One of them you are blessed to be a part of. The other, well, is a curse to be at that supper. To be invited to this second supper is an invitation to have birds gorge themselves on your flesh. It is a supper of condemnation. This long-awaited, much-anticipated war between Jesus and Satan turns into a supper for birds. It is literally a supper for the birds. The beasts are captured. All of the powerful individuals who were impressive and marveled at by so many because of their power were decisively defeated by the word of God. So for many, what's happening here is astoundingly good news. But for many others, it is horrific news. It is a warning for us to ensure we are in the faith. So really, when we get down to the end of things, it all comes down to a meal. It all comes down to a supper. And there are two distinct suppers. One, a supper of blessing, and one, a supper of cursing. Two points of gospel application for us as we close up here. First of all, what Jesus has done, so going back to the beginning of the chapter, and we're seeing people falling down, worshiping Jesus. What Jesus has done is what compels those people's joy, what compels them to worship. The songs that are being sung in Revelation 19 are exclaiming the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done. So what's going on here in this picture in Revelation 19 is not dutiful, obligatory penance being paid. These are voices 
thundering in praise. They are shouting their admiration of Jesus. There's no compulsion here. They're bought in. This is a great sign indicating spiritual health for us as well. When we sing, are we more concerned with our voice? Are we more concerned with those who are around us? Or are we more concerned with the object of who we are singing about? Last week, my wife was kind to FaceTime me during the sermon, uh, during the service. And I was laying in bed, because that's what I did for like six days straight. And I was laying in bed and listening to the singing. And it just brought tears to my eyes. Because I could, the, the, the phone was out there, right? And, and like I, I could just hear the church singing. It's nothing against Brett, right? Uh, it was just such a gift to hear all of you singing. And, and there's such an encouragement that comes from that. When we are full-throated in our praise of God, when we are fixated on Him, we're lost in who He is and His goodness, it gives Him praise, but it also encourages one another as well. We need to hear one another sing these songs. So look at Jesus' love. Look at his care for you and let his works drive your singing. If you're, if you're concerned about your voice, hey, many of us, myself included, we'll never have a mic for that. That's okay. We're going we're gonna to give the mic to somebody else. You don't have to worry about that. We're smart enough, I think, to know who to give the mic to, but let's full-throated. Give praise to Jesus, because he is worthy of it. Secondly, let's just look at Jesus, especially in verses 11 to 16 in chapter 19. Don't think of him being faithful and true as these abstract concepts that mean nothing to us. Who Jesus is revealed to us as must inform every part of our lives. So let Jesus' faithfulness, let it speak to, let it inform your loneliness. Let it comfort you when you are hurting, when you are discouraged. Let these realities about who Jesus is be what you need. And in order for us to do that, we've got to keep looking at him reminding ourselves he is faithful you are not forgotten you are not alone jesus is fighting for you even now he is fighting for you so let jesus truth speak to the bevy of satan lies that are thrown at you each day and and there are many lies so satan has many lies but our culture also has lies as well like i'm not talking about the lie that says, that's pervasive in, in our culture, that says, you are enough. This is a cultural lie for us. You are enough. You are not enough. You are not enough. And that's the whole picture that's being drawn here for us. Jesus is enough. We are not enough. Nothing else is enough. Only Jesus is what Revelation incessantly screams at us. Jesus is the way, 
to life. He is the only one who can satisfy us. He is the only one who can save us. So let's keep turning our gaze to him. Let's help one another. Keep turning our collective gaze to him. Look at him, which means trust in Jesus.